You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. It's all so strange, this world outside. All so cold, I stretched and cried. For after so long, being so close to a heartbeat. What are these? Hands? Feet? The confusion, cold air and shadows surround. I struggle to make sense of all the sounds. There are voices now too. I stretch legs and arms. Voices that soothe. I'm protected from harm. I feel helpless and weak. Things don't work as they should. In these loving arms, I know that I could take all the time in the world to learn and to grow, to develop, understand, to believe and know. That the one who made me brings me into his light. He creates and inspires. He turns me away from the night. For where I am broken, he revives and restores. And though I often stumble, he sees all of my flaws. He helps me see light, even though there is shade. I know that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We are reading from 2 Samuel 9, verse 1 to 13. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul with whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to him to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops, for that your master's grandson may be provided for and Mephibosheth's grandson of your master will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, 
Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Good evening, everyone. Why don't we pray to begin? Lord, would you guide my words and open our hearts to all that you want to say to us this evening? Amen. Well, hello. We're kicking off a brand new series today called Our Beautiful Broken Bodies. And I don't know about you, but it often feels to me like we're living in a time of real contradiction and confusion. Maybe it's just me that's easily confused. But at the moment, the things that we used to be able to do, we can't do, or we're forbidden from doing. The things we now can do, we might not be able to do for much longer. And who even knows what we'll all be able to do and not do in a few weeks' time? Well, if you can possibly bear it, we're going to be exploring another apparent contradiction and perhaps point of confusion in the Bible tonight. How is it that we have passages of scripture like Psalm 139 that describe to us how closely and deeply God knows us and wants a relationship with us, that tell us that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, and that tell us God's thoughts about us are vast. And yet, we also have passages like 2 Samuel 9 that speak of a man called Jonathan and his son who was crippled. Now, even though 2 Samuel 4 tells us that Jonathan's son had become crippled through an accident, he was clearly physically restricted his whole life. If we are so precious, how come bad things happen to us? Why doesn't God just stop them? If God has made us so perfectly, why do our bodies so often let us down? Well, let's try and explore all that in three chunks that I'm going to call exploration, restoration and sanctification. So, exploration first. I think it will be helpful to say right out of the gate that it's possible to believe in a God that is totally for us and loves us beyond measure and at the same time acknowledge that, that things, that our bodies aren't perfect and they aren't as they should be. Now, we could simply play the so-called mystery card here and say, well, well, that, it is what it is, it's true, you just have to live with the contradiction. But I don't think that will quite cut it, partly because that would make this sermon come to an end pretty much now, um, and I wouldn't have anything to do, uh, but also because I think there's a difference between an out-and-out -out contradiction that suggests one side of the argument is false, an attention that whilst painful and difficult to process at times can be held with both lines of reasoning intact. Psalm 139 reminds us that God is ultimately responsible for the beginning and creation of our life. Verse 13 says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Who we are is no accident or fluke of nature and long before you were conceived by your parents, you were conceived in the mind of God. God prescribed every detail of your physical body and the uniqueness of your personality. God left no detail to chance and he has a reason for everything he creates. 
Dr. Michael Denton, a senior research fellow in human molecular genetics at the University of Otago in New Zealand, concluded this. All the evidence available in the biological sciences supports the core proposition that the cosmos is a specially designed whole with life and mankind as its fundamental goal and purpose. Isaiah 46 tells us that God formed the earth not to be empty but to be inhabited. Why? Because God is a God of love. He created us to love us and more than that, God doesn't simply have love. He is love. It's the essence of his character. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us, for our salvation. Hang on though, you might say, if we were made as objects of God's love exactly as he intended, why would Jesus need to come to earth in the flesh to die for each one of us? In Fallen, the theologian D.A. Carson makes this point. There can be no argue, agreement to what salvation is unless there is agreement as to that which salvation rescues us. It's impossible to gain a deep grasp of what the cross achieves without plunging into a deep grasp of what sin is. We read in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, about the perfect world God had created, the world in which he was to place those whom he had created to love, us, you and me. Satan, though, who was thrown out of heaven for rebelling against God, tries to tempt the first woman, Eve, and he succeeds. Temptation wasn't a sin, but giving into it was. One of the realities of sin is that its effects spread like ripples in a pond. God calls out to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 verse 9. He says, where are you? God wanted to be with them, but they were afraid to show themselves. Sin had broken their close relationship with God just as it's broken ours. And we've inherited their corrupted nature. And the world today isn't as it should be. There is hope though great hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And that leads us on to restoration. About three or four months ago, I was making a cup of tea for my wife in her favourite mug. Now, we have a lot of my, uh, mugs in the Weimark household as we drink industrial amounts of tea. Uh, but this particular mug was special. It had great sentimental value and my wife had drunk tea out of it every day for as long as I'd known her uh, and long before that. Our daughter Zoe was in the kitchen and I'd put the mugs out on the countertop ready to make some tea. Uh, but Zoe looked like she was about to kind of trip over. So I, so I reached down to help her. But as I did so, I knocked my wife's mug with my arm. Um, it tipped over off the counter and smashed into a great many pieces on the stone floor in front of Zoe and I. Now, I, of course, made sure Zoe was OK, which she was, thankfully, uh, and apologised profusely to my wife uh, for smashing her mug into smithereens. <laughs> the following day, when I was giving Zoe her breakfast of Weetabix, she said out of the blue, Mummy's cup broken. I told her, yes, yes, it was, but that Daddy would buy Mummy a new one. Needless to say, Zoe reminded me, Mummy's cup broken every day for about three months. She did not let me forget it. It got me thinking though, that's often our attitude to things that are broken, isn't it? It's too much trouble to fix it, to, to glue the pieces back together. It's often 
much easier to start again and to buy another brand new, updated, upgraded version. The upgrade culture surrounds us, doesn't it? Telling us that making do makes you out of fashion and that being out of fashion makes you irrelevant. And before too long, we find ourselves breaking into an anxious sweat as we take out our smartphone in public, just in case someone shouts out, 1994 is calling, they want their phone back. It's often much more than a phone, however, isn't it, that culture leads us to believe is broken and needs disposing of. That broken relationship just ghosts them. That broken marriage split up. Those broken dreams just give up on them. That broken life not worth continuing. There's a centuries-old Japanese art of mending broken pottery called kintsugi. Gold dust is mixed with resin to reattach broken pieces or fill in cracks resulting in an utterly striking bond. Instead of trying to hide the repair, the art makes something compellingly beautiful out of brokenness. And in doing so, it greatly increases the value of the piece. And that's the heart of it all. Turning something broken into something of worth. Instead of hiding the flaws, they are highlighted. As even though it was once broken, the pottery not only now has a history, but also a whole new story. When you fix something, the intention is usually to make it as good as new. Yet the art of Kintsugi reinforces the profound belief that repair can make things not only as good as they were before, but better than new. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, God breaks through all the mess in our lives and assures us that we are never too broken for repair or too broken for restoration. Brokenness has a power, unlike anything else, to bring forth new strength and inspiration to others. I know it's true for me that it's most often in those moments of deep suffering that I've known God's profound presence, his putting me back together so that his grace shines through every moment of pain and hurt and suffering. God brings to life what was broken, as through Jesus he was willing to take on the brokenness of the world in exchange for our freedom. That leads us on to our final point, sanctification. Sanctification is the action or process of being purified or freed from sin. Or to put it another way, the action or process of being restored through Jesus Christ, who opens the way for us to renew our relationship with him. Sin broke Adam and Eve's close relationship with God, just like it's broken ours. But Jesus sanctifies us through his death and resurrection at the cross, paving the way for a relationship of a life in all its abundance with the living God. It's such a lavish love, a love that Revelation 21 verse 5 describes as making all things new. It doesn't just happen. The process of sanctification takes a deliberate action on our part. When our heart is broken over something we've done wrong, God 
mends it with a priceless forgiveness generously offered by Jesus at the cross. He receives us with love when we humble ourselves before him and closeness is restored. You know, God uses our circumstances to develop our character and Jesus warned us that we would have our share of difficult seasons. It's in those moments that we can learn to pray our most honest prayers. Joni Erickson Tada is an American author and broadcaster. Not long before her 20th birthday, she dived into a lake but misjudged the depth of the water. She fractured her back and as a result became a quadriplegic, paralysed from the shoulders down. In the years that followed, she experienced anger, depression and doubt. But during therapy, learned to paint by holding a brush between her teeth. To date, she's written over 40 books using voice recognition software, recorded several musical albums, starred in a movie of her life and has become an advocate for people with disabilities. She said this about suffering. When life is rosy, we may slide by with knowing about Jesus, without imitating him and quoting him and speaking of him, but only in suffering will we know Jesus. That's not to say, of course, we should ever actively seek suffering and brokenness, not at all. But it is to say that we learn things about God and therefore about ourselves that we just can't learn any other way. Problems and difficult times in our lives don't automatically produce what God intends though. We can become bitter rather than better and we have to try and respond the way Jesus would. We can remember that God's plan is good and give thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances, but in them. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18 says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We can also be persistent and refuse to give up, trusting in God and his goodness, his love and his abundant grace. Corrie Ten Boom, who helped hundreds of Jews escape the Nazis during World War II, said this about fixing your eyes on Jesus. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. Are you fixing your eyes on Jesus? Are you allowing him to build character in you despite what may be challenging circumstances? Are you thanking God for his love, care, wisdom, power and faithfulness? Be encouraged today, as through Luke 6, verse 23, Jesus says to you now, Rejoice on that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. God enters our suffering and our brokenness. He will turn your test into a testimony, your mess into a message, and your trial into a triumph. Jesus did it when he walked the earth. He did it at the cross, and his Holy Spirit is doing it in us now. God is the God of total transformation and everlasting hope in the midst of our beautiful brokenness. Amen.